doing this. Sorry, I, I fucked up the time and like the whole thing. I, I lift weights for a living, you know. It's, it gets weird up there sometimes. So thanks for working with me. Yeah, of course. How uh, how are you, man? I'm good. Today's been good. Today's been productive and uh, just just uh, nothing very noteworthy. You, you seem to be very busy, man. That this is good. Yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, you got to, especially with um, uh, uh, with with the COVID thing, it, it put a serious burden on me to to figure out a way to stay busy. So now I'm trying to figure out how to uh, spin less plates. You know, but biting off more than you can chew isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's, it means you're trying hard. <laughs> I have a theory: balance is a little bit overrated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good, good philosophy to have as a metal fan. I think so, man. And yeah. a, you know, fitness professional, entrepreneur, whatever we can do, we can do. You can't be balanced and succeed and all that shit. It just won't work, man. I'm sure. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta extend yourself. I mean, it's a great way. It's a great segue into. Uh, yeah. Talking about the 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 experience, the lessons learned at the gym, and oftentimes that is. You know, the, the more strain and discomfort you're willing to introduce, the more adversity you're willing to introduce to whatever process, usually the, the richer the rewards, the sweeter the fruit. So yeah, I think that the, the spirit is no different. It responds the same way to pressure and adversity. And, uh, so it's just making, building a mind gym, which is harder to do this day and age than going into the real one. Yeah, man. We call it mental combat, like Mortal Kombat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I do want to. I want to give a, a little bit of background for for those that will be listening to this because I'm going to release this after we release the uh, Lifts and Riffs podcast we did with you. So, you know, that that's where you know if anybody listening to this now wants to hear more about your music and all that shit, we cover that in depth on that one. So I don't really want to yeah. spend too much time there, but. I, I begged you to come back because it sounded like you had just had such an inspiring story there that we really didn't get to touch on from there with, uh, with your setbacks health wise and, you know, fit, fitness related and everything. So I, if you don't mind, I would, I would really love to try to dig into that a little bit. Now. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess, um, what is your history with, you know, growing up with, um, fitness, going to the gym like when did you start and uh as related to heavy metal i know you got into music young and did those things go hand in hand for you at all they didn't actually the my commitment to the body kind of came later you okay. know i grew up in an environment kind of a classic common environment of inambitious people that were plagued with all sorts of mental, psychological, and emotional ghosts and uh, self-medicated. And it was a very, it was not a um, environment for that, that was conducive to self-improvement. Um, and it was also like the idea of going to the gym was kind of well outside of my financial means for a, a period of time. Mm. But, uh, um, it came really, I was very grateful. I had a buddy growing up, um, who, uh, was a power lifter 
and he got into powerlifting when he was about 17. And in an effort to, it's funny, kind of hand in hand with vitriol, uh, vitriol took a hiatus in 2012, 2013. Um, Adam, the bass player had quit. I had let go of the drummer at the time. Um, I was in a really unsatisfied place creatively with the stuff that I was doing. And I was like, you know, I need to change, fuck it. So I bought a motorcycle and I started powerlifting and I was like, that's going to be the thing that I do. <laughs> Strong move. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I took my bike down to San Diego and came back and uh, did the whole soul searching thing and uh, started lifting. And um, with my buddy, it was more as a means of connecting with a friend that our relationship was beginning to atrophy. You know, he was definitely more into, we, we, our, our mutual interests were waning and um, he was always more of like an athletic guy. If I'm being honest, when I was younger, I was always a fairly scrawny and even like a feminine kind of guy. So being picked on by guys that were, you know, your kind of stereotypical jocks, it allowed me to kind of, other in a sense like physical fitness like oh that's just for meat-headed dudes that like are insecure or something you know like a very naive idea you know and a self-protective idea it was a way of me like vilifying a strength that they resented me for not having and i resented myself for not having i'm not saying it's okay to be that way uh toward people that that aren't you know just come out of the womb like a brick shit house but um, you know, it doesn't mean it is the wrong move to kind of celebrate or vilify your commitment to your body because it's just, you know, it's, I don't need to explain to you why you can't do that, but it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's just, it's part of, as you become more in touch with either your mind or your body, you realize that they're really inseparable and, uh, that you can learn so much about your mind and your body uh, through oh, yeah. exercising either of them. But it, it, not to get too far off track, but the relationship with metal and Perfect. weightlifting, um, absolutely. I think, uh, I think metal, for me, metal played a very paternal role in my life. So early on, um, you know, if, if, you were, if you grow up in an environment where you don't have strong parental uh, a presence or whatever, or what have you, or mentorship, uh, you know, you find lessons where, where you can. And I fell in love with metal at a very early age because I think it was kind of, in hindsight, it was playing the role, this kind of paternalistic fatherly role to me in terms of uh, this kind of discipline, instilling in me these, these harder values that I think historically fathers, and I'm totally open to whoever's teaching those, but historically, you know, the, the anthropologically, the role of a father is to wean you onto the discomfort, the uncomfortable conditions of reality and to prepare you for reality, right? Of course, of course. And I think heavy metal does a great job of doing that if you're if you're listening, if you have a responsible relationship with it and you're listening to the right stuff, it can really help not only 
introduce harsh realities about the world that other people would rather um, move on seeing. Uh, and it makes it, um, and it empowers you to face them, yeah. you know, and it, it demands you to. And I think that for me, just through the, pro the self-realizing process of doing, going, I had a, I had a moment. I, I like to describe this moment at the gym where it was kind of an aha moment where when I very, when I first started lifting squats, terrified the shit out of me for whatever reason. I didn't, I didn't like the sensation of the bar on my shoulders. I didn't like, I felt like it was, um, there was this kind of dread I experienced lifting heavy, trying to lift heavy when I first started going. Yeah. And they were very difficult for me to do, you know, when, when, especially since I, my body was so inactive for so long mm -hmm. and I, I'm a very intense person Whatever I do. I'm like, we're fucking doing it, you know? Thanks. So I put a lot of expectation on myself and I remember just being really just uh, really having a hard time with the squats. And I remember thinking to myself, I caught myself kind of the, the subconscious. I caught myself saying, man, I can't wait until I'm stronger and this gets easier. And then my conscious mind kicked in and was like, no, when it gets easier, you just put more weight on it. Never gets easier. It never gets easier. Lesson of life, man. <laughs> As you get stronger, arguably it gets harder because you can strive harder. You can push harder. You've, you've rediscovered limits. You've relocated. You've expanded limitations. You become more explosive. You become mentally stronger. You can... You don't fear that weight on, on top of your body anymore. So it's like there was this aha moment and that it's not about racing to a place of comfort and equilibrium. It's about learning to live in the fire and learning to run into the fire and stay there so you can be forged and to redefine these kind of sensations of this brutalizing this kind of what what i think in a lot of contemporary philosophies more mainstream philosophies would be considered self-cruelty you know yeah and it's like but it's not you know it's like it's this and the more you can endure the more rapid that growth and it almost becomes addicting you become like this you know absolutely uh, and it can it can be self-destructive you know like i had i had a very hard time mentally recently because I had just overburdened myself, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, but yeah, that was one of the first important lessons that I was really able to translate into my real life activity was this sense of, it's about stress tolerance. It's not about getting away from it. It's not about enduring. So like, if I can get through this, then I can, and this leads to this chronic, I think when we talk about walking through the world and anything, whether it be your job or relationships, it's this fallacy that you tell yourself that you're gonna, you're true, you, once you arrive, you'll be fine, you can relax. It's like, if you don't get right with the fact that that's not how anything works, right. and that's not what life is, that's not what life is for. Right. Like you need to get with the program and the longer you resist the program, you're swimming upstream, you know what I mean? You're like, you're confused, you're fatalistic, 
you're breaking down all the time because you don't understand why it's not getting easier. It's because you just gotta, you know. Right, man. And yeah. that's, that's what, like you said, heavy metal can teach you that too. If you listen to the right shit from a young age, especially combined with the weightlifting routine for, from a young age, for sure. You know, that's like, you can listen to pop music and walk on the treadmill, or you can listen to Slayer and do squats. <laughs> and then you're going yeah, to exactly. be a different human being from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I tell people, I tell people close to me, no, I, I'm not a man of many regrets, but I have two genuine, sincere regrets that I don't think that I think only robbed me and not really shaped me. And that was not starting to lift weights sooner. Yeah. I think that's something that everyone should just do. I just don't think it's something that some people should do. I think like some sort of weight training is, is, is a kind of analog is it's, it's this like right hand. If you can come, if, if you can introduce like, weightlifting and meditation into your life you know what i mean it's like you're you're and i i haven't gotten too far with meditation myself but uh it's something that i'm looking into currently um and it's just i know that uh i just know how much my life exploded before me when i started working out and how much more confidence i had just as in as because you start, whether you think about it consciously or not, overcoming these, overcoming these plateaus, watching yourself grow, it infects the way you, you look at your ability to move through any sort of obstacle. Like whether you're thinking about it or not, it's not you're like, you're like, oh, I went 15 pounds up on my tricep pull down. Like, so now I can get that fucking promotion. Like that's, but it does give you this sense of this constant source of validation and growth and, and just, I don't know. It's just kind of food, food for the soul and the mind that you can't get anywhere else. And it, it validates suffering in many ways too. You know, you, you oh, yeah. get better after an intense round of training, you know, the hardest workouts, the times you want to quit and just throw up and die or whatever, that yeah. they produce the best results. And that is the same thing for everything you fucking do in life, you know? build a business, build a band, whatever, write your best book, anything you want to do. It takes suffering, but you know that it lights at the end of that tunnel. If you have a dedicated fitness routine, man, Absolutely. that's why it's, it's, it's so important to hear you talk about it like that because growing up a misfit out of shape metalhead, like many of us are many of those out there listening are. And uh, I was, you know, I, I fucking looked like I was anorexic. For a long time and i started getting getting into weight training just to get myself healthier and i straight up looked like fucking marilyn manson dude like i was <laughs> I, I had the black fingernails my hair was down oh, my yeah. ass i was 100 pounds and i'm like i'm listening to like back then it was like slipknot and slayer yeah. and, I, and i'm going to the gym and i don't give a fuck you know but so many of us out there like in my position and in your position would never can even consider going to the gym or doing push-ups or anything because it has that stigma of, oh, there are a bunch of jock pricks that are going to judge me. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And while that may be true, you know, from someone that works in the fitness industry, most of the time that's all in your own head anyway. Um, you know, there's bullies in high school. That's never going to change, man. Exactly. Like, 
building this community. That's what, that's why I wanted to do what I wanted to do is to, is to provide like a heavy metal or death comes lifting sort of give those people a place they can wear a shirt. Like they're wearing their favorite band shirt, walk into the gym and be like, fuck it. Um, yeah. So like hearing that from someone in your position and a successful fucking killer band that's built his life on that, just it validates not only what I do, but I think people need to hear that, man. I really oh, appreciate, well, I appreciate that. Man. That's, and I just want to say how, how when you said validate suffering, that gave me goosebumps. That's exactly. And I think that's, uh, yeah, man. And that's what the world needs. I think a bit, a lot more of right now is that don't, don't stop vilifying your suffering. It's there. It's your friend. You know what I mean? It's your friend. It's not, it's, it's helping you. It's like that. It's the tough love that, you know, that, that we need, you know, it's just, and it makes it so much easier. If you can learn to be hard on yourself at the gym, it's so much easier to be hard on yourself in other aspects of your life, you know, yeah. to hold yourself accountable. And let, you know, let's be face it. I, I know, um, you know, you didn't have the um, most comfortable upbringing and may, maybe you don't have the most comfortable life now, but a lot of us, especially in this world that we, we live in, we're, we're very privileged in many ways. And a lot of people's lives are, are very comfortable or we can let them, we can fall into the trap of letting our lives be very comfortable and just kind of cruise on through. And a great way to combat that is to fucking kick your own ass in the gym or have somebody kick your ass in the gym or do yoga even or, or anything. You know, yeah. we, we need that. You know, life shouldn't be easy. Yeah, no. all the time we need problems as people you know yeah. yeah absolutely and we thrive it's a it's a it's a behavioral fact that human beings strive in it's an evolutionary fact that we strive under pressure that uh and that the more i actually just listened to a podcast there's a great um there's a great self-aware very responsible podcast called the art of manliness i'm not sure if you're familiar with it I, I am a little bit yeah yeah it's great and uh my partner Sophia and i listen to it regularly uh um we just listened to a, a podcast on the dangers of comfort like the modern issues of comfort okay. Okay. and uh it a guy literally wrote a book on why the the comfort crisis right the modern comfort crisis uh, what's that I said, oh, shit, I didn't know. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very fascinating. And he, he talks about his journey and how he, you know, went on a uh, fucking, um, oh, what was it? Some sort of uh, caribou hunt for a month or something like crazy, just, you know, like to put himself through the ringer, you know, and the things he learned doing that, uh, you know, encountering true boredom for the first time in his life and experiencing genuine hunger like real hunger you know uh things like that and um it uh, and the uh the thing is we need that perspective our minds need perspective you know we don't he used a really good example about how think of it in terms of cell phones you know we don't interact with our cell phones and say wow this is amazing you know 10 years ago i didn't have this how great is it now that i have this you know like maybe the most self-aware of us like note it every once in a while but more often than not, our response is like, Instagram isn't working. This fucking sucks. Sure. You know, sure. like we find ways to be disappointed. So all you're doing, you're actually not really by, in, by this, this scrambling toward comfort that modernity has, that has encouraged us to do. You know, we live at a constant 72 degrees. You know, we have food delivered straight to our door. 
we have any just the, the whiff of boredom and we have almost unlimited resources to address our boredom with. You know what I mean? So it's like we've just rendered, we've turned ourselves into um, weird little bubble blob people that just don't have any sort of tolerance for anything. Like we have a whole new generation that's afraid that that's, that's too, they're too socially nervous to even like call people on the phone. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, and it's not because like the new generation is more cowardly or anything. It's not, it has nothing to do with it. It's like, they're a victim of their environment. Sure. Right. They were never, they didn't have to um, go into the fire before just in the fire of like socializing and these kind of things and like having to do. And now how can you blame them? You know? So we're just seeing this gradual self cannibalizing of the spirit you know, because we just can't, can't get right with discomfort or we, we can't figure out how to value it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How, well, that, that brings us to um, a good point where I'd like to, I'd like to recap on the, uh, on all your, your medical issues and, you know, oh, yeah. being in the hospital and all that talk about validating suffering and valuing discomfort, man. Like how did uh, yeah. If, if uh, you don't mind recapping that a little bit and talking about uh, your journey back to fitness and how you came out, maybe thinking about shit a little bit differently. Yeah, it's hard, dude. It's a, it's, it's an experience that even is still fresh enough and recent enough that it's, it was the first time I, I came out of that. I told the guys in my van, I told that, that that's the thing that made me a, a, a man. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, I came out of that a very different person and in some ways a lesser person. I mean, I think there's that it's and in other ways not, but it, uh, that shit was just, it was the first time I've always been, I think it goes without saying based on everything that's all, everything else that's been discussed in this conversation that I'm someone that has always valued the, um, you know, the old adage, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know? And I always um, felt that my, was seeing opportunity in moments of adversity regardless of how great they are and uh this was the first time i was like this is just taking for me you know like it was so fucking hard uh not only just so first things first i was experiencing chronic stomach pain for a couple years um throughout my 20s and I assumed I was just uh, developing a food allergy late in life. Uh, and I didn't address it because I didn't have health insurance. Um, so I, uh, one day I woke up early in the morning with very severe stomach pain that made it unable for me to move. Um, I was living with Adam at the time, fortunately, and he found me on the couch and him along with my roommate and friend uh, took me to ho- hospital. It, it, I ended up getting a, having a perforated intestine because of um, Crohn's disease, an inflammatory disease of the bowel that uh, after extensive in, spells of inflammation can weaken the wall of the bowel so it breaks open, you get a hole in it, you get a perforation. And then you're your, you know, your stuff starts coming out on the inside. So that happened. Um, and it was like, you know, 
it's such a funny laundry list. It's not funny. It's such a, I have a hard time talking about it almost because there's such a, it's, it's, it's almost like stranger than fiction, the series of events, you know, the kind of the mishaps. And um, at first they thought I was uh, constipated. The first woman that treated me thought I was constipated. So she gave me, um, oh my goodness, what was it? Gave me citric nitrate. I think, which was basically like, um, it's, it's nuclear laxative, right? It's based it has, but it's very acidic. So that blowing through my system with the acid coming through the perforation into my abdomen was by far the most painful experience of my life. By far the most painful experience of my life. So they are, trying to pump me i'm screaming like i've not like it's the only kind of pain i've experienced where i'm like insane with like insane with pain like i'm just screaming things fucking help me god help me you know like this kind of thing and this what this panic is like trying to give me bolus after bolus of of fucking delighted so and nothing's working oh my god man and a couple days go by I'm just kind of like out of, out of, out of sorts. So out of sorts with just kind of pain and, and meds. And I, the arm that my IV is in, that the, the drugs aren't being very effective. My hand, I realized I looked down at my hand and I, I can't make a fist. I, I remember trying to make a fist with my right hand. I'm like, why can't I close my fist? And I looked down and I was so out of it. I hadn't looked at my arm in days. And my arm and my, my hand was like a boxing glove. It was like twice the size of this hand. And the flesh on my arm was huge. You had skin tearing away from itself, fluid dripping down my arms. And what had happened was they had plowed through my vein and they had been letting the saline and the medicine pump into my tissue, which is a huge, huge, huge no-no. And if it was a different kind of medication, I would have lost my entire right arm. Like the nurse was like, I would fucking sue these people, like da 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 da, da. and uh, uh, so you know that's just like a liner note. The long, long story short, at the end of my three month stay at the hospital, between what the state was willing to cover, the hospital just waived all of it because they were like, that's how bad they fuck up. You know, hospital fucks up when they're like, we're good, just don't call us ever again. Yeah, that's <laughs> bad. That's bad. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, yeah, you, we don't need it. It's fine. You're alive. We're alive. Let's just never talk about this again. A, a three-month stay at the hospital under perfect conditions has to be a soul-sucking experience. I can only imagine, bro. It, it was a kind of hell. It was a special kind of hell. I mean, it was, it was, I wasn't walking. I wasn't drinking or eating because when they're, I have to stay, basically, I just, until my digestive system was functioning again. So until I took a shit effectively and I had to be healed enough for that to happen. So as we were waiting for me to heal, so they have these tubes in me, these drains, right? They're like, they look like two little uh, fucking Christmas tree ornaments, but they're plastic and they hang out with your sides. They're clipped to your little shitty gown and all of the uh, fluid from the healing surgery after they cut me open, drain into these balls right so one day two days in 
that all that yellow fluid starts turning into like green kale smoothie looking stuff. And the surgeon was like, I've never seen that before. I don't know what that is. I don't know why it's that color. I guess we'll just wait and see if it stops. Oh my God. So we, we and then like two days after, after waiting to see if my body stops expelling green sludge, she comes in, looks at my stapled up stomach, pushes on it, and that green sludge starts spewing out of the wounds in my stomach. Dude. <laughs> and she's like, we're taking you back in. We're cutting you back open. So second surgery, she's like, that's it. And it turned out that her bowel resection, where she cut part of my intestine and, and sutured it, that failed. That connection failed. So that whole time, my bowel was just open, like leaking into my abdomen. Oh my God. And uh, so they brought me in, did that. So obviously the trauma to the body is greater now. My abdomen, I'm more swollen, waiting for it to heal, all the while not eating, not drinking. I'm getting all my nutrition through an IV. Um, and uh, then I get, I don't remember the exact timeline, but as I'm waiting to go home, because it's just a waiting game, you just wait. You just fucking wait. And after about a month of being in the hospital, people get, kind of just start to move on. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a ton of, this isn't like a woe is me thing. It's just a fact of the matter, right? It's like people have like, you know, I don't have strong immediate family in the area. So friends or whatever, it's not like I don't have friends. I have friends that showed up, you know, were, were kind. And, and, but after about a month of that, no fault to them, life just kind of starts moving on, right? So for about two months in there, you kind of feel like you kind of died, yeah. you know? <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. You know, like, uh, you just, you're, you're just forgotten about. And uh, so there's this real radical kind of isolation that you feel, especially in like a, a, a moment so dire where you, you're confronted with a kind of, I think we all pay lip service to the fact that we're alone in the existential sense, but there are experiences that make you feel how alone we are and how responsible you are for yourself. And it's kind of this, if you let it, it can be, it's harrowing and it's horrible news and it's tragic, I think, but it's the truth. And it's, if you can internalize it uh, you can take radical control over yourself. Um, but that was an experience that was like, there was really, if, if I could just sit here and let myself rot and die, no one would fucking stop me. Not a single person. Yeah. You know, and this, like, even the song, The Road Calls You Brother, kind of deals on our album, kind of deals with this idea of futility in this kind of like, crying about the state of whatever, the situation you're in. But so for those months, I was waiting to heal, back to the thing. I was waiting to heal and then great. while they're letting your, while they're asking you for your, <laughs> trying to get your bowels to kick back on because what happens is from all of the uh, medication they give you from doing the surgery, your bowels go to sleep and you have to wait for your bowels to 
wake up literally, right? They kind of shut down and then eventually they, and the best way to do that is to walk. And walking wasn't great, you know, when you're fucking gutted like a fish. So I'm walking around with a little, you know, walker up and down the hallway and the, for every, I don't, every couple hours I was supposed to do it. And I'm doing it one day and all of a sudden I feel wet. I feel like my, the front of my pants, the underside of my shirt is just wet. And I knew something was wrong. I didn't even look. I just turned around and went straight back to the room, prepared myself mentally, hopped up on the bed, on my lie back, pulled up my shirt, and sh shit, you know, feces was pouring out of my navel. Uh, and I got what's called a fistula. And a fistula is when your, your stuff is trying to heal um, and stuff is trying to get through it can kind of make artificial tunnels in your body so that stuff can come out through the weakest path of least resistance, right? It finds a path of least resistance in your body. And it did that with my belly button. So uh, I'm sitting there now with an apple in the middle of my stomach and, and I don't know what's going on. And the, the doctor explained to me, this is what a fistula is. There's nothing we can do. It either heals or it doesn't. And uh, they're like, more often than not, it heals, but you might, you know, have an ostomy bag, you know, for, for a year or so or whatever. So being like at the time, 29, um, that was a, that was a hard thing. You know, it was a hard thing to be like, uh, I have like a, you know, it was just this, this just kind of over this bludgeoning over the head of like, disabling the the self in a way and yeah uh very i'm very fortunate that healed relatively quickly i think healed in about a month nice um uh so we got that going for us yes point. yes exactly no more asshole belly button that's good um, and uh so the rest was a waiting game you know it was just staying there um with a steady drip of Dilaudid, which is more powerful than morphine for three months. You know, I did not have a steady stream of, of opiates for three months. Um, I was just running on it. And holy shit. Yeah, the day that I was, and this is good, like, to give a little bit of personal backstory, I never fucked with pills. My mom was a pill head. That's why my mom's gone. So. It was uh, growing up watching my mom uh, go through life like a zombie. Yeah, it was easy for me to stay away from that stuff. So I didn't have. This isn't me blaming some sort of shit on. You know, I stayed away from that shit deliberately. They actually had to talk me into taking it because after the second day of my surgery, I was just taking Tylenol after my surgery, and the the, the surgeon was like, "You can't do that." They're like, you can't do that. They had, they had like a straight intervention with me. They had like three other doctors. One guy straight up told me, fucking verbatim, he looked me in the eye and he said, you're not going to be an addict because you don't have an addictive personality. Wow. This guy didn't even know me. I have one of the most addictive personalities out of anyone I've ever fucking met. Yeah, man. Even he doesn't I'm fucking know me. 
Holy it's like the most irresponsible thing a medical professional has ever fucking told me. That's crazy, man. So after, and this is the best part, right? After I'm getting let go out of the hospital, which felt like a prison sentence. Sure. Uh, they pull, I shit me not, the day I get out, the nursing assistant comes in. She unhooks the IV of Dilaudid from my arm, gives me a one milligram it's just a nice steady bump for the road of Dilaudid. Hands me a shit of a, a stack of discharge paperwork, and buried at the bottom is like a three-page pamphlet on the opiate crisis in America. And that was it. No conversation. Nothing like, "Hey, you've been on this shit for three months. You probably don't know it, but your your body's radically dependent on it. So you need to, you know, maybe get some like it's, it's fucking crazy to me." that we don't have a system for people that have been in extended hospital stays where they've been pumped full of opiates. Like you should have a two week rehabilitation phase. People can't leave until you put them in a bed. You fucking, I don't care if you gotta strap them down. I don't give a shit. You're feeding people to the wolves, man. Like I'm a willful hard headed motherfucker. And that was quitting opiates was the hardest thing I ever fucking did. And it almost killed me. It almost fucking killed me. I was awake for seven straight, seven days fucking straight. I wrote a suicide letter because I couldn't fucking sleep. I was seeing race cars on the fucking wall because I was sick of being sick. Dude. And no one will help you because once you're far enough down the road, you're a fucking liability. So you only have yourself and you've alienated your friends because you don't see what's happening. And especially people like me that don't have family, that don't have parents to look out after them, you know, that have all these fair weather friends that I used to have, you know, it's like, it's so easy to think that if you get far gone enough, someone's going to let you know, they're not going to let you know, you're going to wake up under a bridge. That's how you're going to fucking know, you know? Yeah, man. And it's just like, Oh, dude, it was, and I, I, I walked into fucking pain specialist office. I walked into doctor's offices. They wouldn't look me in the eye. It didn't help that I looked the way that I looked. They didn't know I was mostly sober for, for 30 fucking years. They didn't know that, you know? So, man, it was like that hospital stay was bad, but the pills the pills, like getting out of that, not knowing why I just hate, just wanted to die, like trying to not take them. I'm like, cool, I don't need them anymore. I'm gonna stop taking them. And then I was still in a lot of pain because that's just painful. Surgery is painful, right? Oh, so I'm in pain and my body is also, my brain is just desperate for this thing. And the, the mixture between the actual phys physiological need for the medication and the psychological need for the medication, they're inalienable. You can't, they're all just, you know, they're all just intertwined. And, 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 and so you, you, you rationalize it in a, in a real way. You're like, this is my medication. I need it. Even though I know I might be abusing it, I need it. And I also have something that uh, the doctors call a, a, a high tolerance. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Something, I have very high tolerances to medication. So I went from, within two months, I went from taking you know, like a healthy amount of opiates to snorting 350 milligrams of oxy a day because taking their orally wasn't enough. 
Christ, bro. And when I told my doctor that, she was like, you're basically on heroin. She's like, if that's how much you're taking, you're basically, you're, you're 50 milligrams away from heroin. <laughs> like, like you're, you're, you're in bad shape. And I was like, I need help. And she's like, we don't have a room for you. Can you come back in next weekend? And I had already been, I got my last dose of methadone that they would prescribe to me. And I wasn't back to the street. I was sick of going to the street to buy my meds and I was too broke. And I was, the next step would be selling the guitars. And that was a hard line for me. I was like, if I start selling guitars, I know I've gone too far. Wow. And, uh, I was like, if I have to sell guitars to fund my habit, and it got there, I'd spent all my money, all the money that I had, and I was getting the last bit of meds I did from the doctor, and I told my doctor, I was like, I don't have another prescription, and I'm not going to, and I, I'm saying this to the doctor, I'm saying, I'm not going to go buy more pills, I'm not going to do this, and there's no fucking way, you know, like, because that's basically what she was suggesting, she was like, I don't have a room for you, but you need help, you can't do this on your own. You're on too much. You're taking too much. You can't do this on your own. And me and my hubris, <laughs> my bullheadedness, I was like, fuck you, man. You can't tell me that I what I can't fucking do. I don't need your help. I don't need your bed. And so I went home and I had a girlfriend at the time and I tried to sweat it out. And um, I was also trying and my girlfriend at the time god bless her fucking soul her misguided soul was trying to feed was feeding me xanax because i was so fucking stressed out yeah. but the medic the suboxone i was on to, that they had given me that wasn't helping combining that with xanax will stop your respiratory system you'll just stop breathing yeah so there were a couple nights where she had to shake me away because I wasn't breathing. And then I talked to my doctor about it. She's like, no, you'll die. You can't do that. <laughs> so no more Xanax. So that was off the table. And uh, I, uh, I watched, I watched, are you familiar with the show Charmed? Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched about four seasons of Charmed straight. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you don't that's what you know. Like anyone, you don't eat, you know, and you're not even really watching it. You're just kind of sure. occupied. I mean, your mind is just, yeah, you know, and, and in hindsight, yeah, and in this, 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 I don't, um, I have a very overactive mind already. So it was just a, it was a kind of hell. We went back down to my girlfriend's house in Portland. I was living in Seattle at the time. Um, I couldn't walk couldn't eat you know it was like I the the opiates had such a severe effect on my nervous system that I couldn't even tie my shoes my girlfriend had to tie my shoes I didn't even know I was I went to a pain spot this is oh, oh after being um cl clean and sober for oh my god how long three weeks two weeks I still could barely walk I went to a doctor's appointment in a wheelchair and I, I asked a pain specialist with, and I really could only talk like this for a very long time. Like I couldn't even, it was fucking weird, man. Like, and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if this is from my 
surgery. I don't know if this is from the opiates. Like I'm confused. I'm scared. I don't know if I'm going to walk again. And she wouldn't, she just sat there and looked at her computer and just wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't connect with the junkie and wouldn't give me any sort of, it was just, it was the most confusing, disorienting, uh, horrifying experience. And I just like, I just, I just, we need to, we have to figure out a better way. Cause like, it's just, that was, bits into metal though. I did uh, the last, the seventh day, the seventh day, one of my mother's favorite bands of all time was Alice in Chains. And I uh, saw that Alice in Chains was, I had this weird day on the seventh day of no sleep. When the morning hit, I had this weird invigoration, this liveliness where I'm like, I took my girlfriend and her kid to the fucking arcade. We went to David Buster's. We had a great time. Seven days, no sleep. I'm on, and uh, I see we're driving back and I see this couple on a motorcycle and I'm in a tra- I drive a Trans Am. I was in an 85 Trans Am and this guy in a Harley saw my Trans Am. And he's like, you guys going to see Alice in Chains tonight? And I was like, Alice in Chains is in town? My girlfriend had to work. So I dropped my girlfriend off and seven days, no sleep. I drive to Alice in Chains by myself. What a dude. And, and I, bought, I pulled out my credit card. I had no money. I pulled out my credit card. <laughs> I was like, what's the closest fucking seat you have solo? And I spent like $140 on a third row Alice in Chains ticket. Seven days of, of, of quitting opiates. No sleep. My mother was a Pepsi addict. I was double fisting tall cans of Pepsi for my mom. And I'm like, if I die tonight, if I fucking, I'm not kidding, man. I'm like, I know this sounds far out, but I'm telling you the truth. Like, no, I'm like, if I fucking die tonight, if my, if I fucking pass out behind the wheel, like I'm fucking communing with my mom right now. I'm like, we're doing it. I'm going to be with you in 24 hours, man. We're doing this shit. And that night I slept. That night I fell asleep. Wow. So and, Allison Chains has a whole new meaning for you, probably. Yeah, that was it. That is experience and it was it was it was borderline spiritual because i was so out of my gourd you know i was so disconnected from reality because of not sleeping psychosis sets in after day three yeah my I can, sister I is a nurse been there. I've, I've been there yeah. we, have, we have a similar background you and i <laughs> okay, cool. yeah uh, uh dude, so it's like there's so much i could say there's so much so like that is like the most craziest fucking heart-wrenching insane story and seeing you right now so lively and creative and making fucking awesome music and looking strong and all like how how the fuck did you how did you do this dude one day at a time and it's still one day at a time man therapy yeah go go be go talk to someone man go talk to someone you know like it's just it doesn't hurt it's not gonna hurt and there's a lot of therapy, like I am in a particular kind of therapy with called RODBT. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for people that struggle with over-control. And over-control people gravitate toward metal music too. So if you're an enraged metalhead, yeah, that is hyper-focused, um, maybe even a little spectrum. You know what I mean? It's like uh, RODBT is for you. You don't even have to talk about your childhood. They won't even ask you about your past if you don't want to. Uh, they'll just give you tools on how to regain some emotional autonomy, some discipline, 
What's that? I said, I am writing this down right yeah. now as I speak. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's really, really helpful, especially, especially for people that have a hard time maintaining uh, like interpersonal relationships or anything like that. It's, it's, it's hugely helpful. It's hugely, it's been hugely helpful to me in, in self-discovery. It's my, it's part of my mind gym, you know, it's the, absolutely. you know, That's great so to know, man. Yeah, it's, it's just going to make you stronger, man. It's just like any sort of, I don't even know if there's that much of a stigma around that shit anymore, but, you know, like if there is, drop it, you know, let it go, man. Like, you know, you don't, it's not, and also it's not like what a lot of people think, which is just you like boo-hooing about how whatever, your life was hard. Like, especially with RO, they encourage you not to do that because a lot of OC people deal with uh, over-control individuals um, have, have a hard time ruminating, you know, ruminating on negative ideas or thoughts or whatever. It's part of the, the dark side of the focus. Um, so yeah, that, that, it, but for me, it was, uh, I, I, I'm a dreamer, man. And I think ultimately that like, as I get farther in life, I'm just in my own way, maybe not in a conventional way, but in my own way, I'm, I'm a rom I'm a romantic, you know, especially when it comes to music that I uh, um, so deeply want to live the dream that that I've and I, so I don't know man it's hard to describe like it's just uh, fight or die you know you kind of have choices and I think that once you realize that there is no real you can't do anything in life and stay stagnant. You either move toward life or you move toward death. You know, anything that you do, sitting still, you're moving, sorry to break it to you, but you're, you're moving toward death. That's not sitting still, you know? So it's like, you just, once you really internalize that belief, you really think of life that way. I think the discomfort you feel, the guilt, the, the, the weight of unrealized potential weighs heavy if you can be honest with yourself and uh, and just let that pain, again, the validation of suffering, um, fuck, fuck your fucking self-help, self-care shit, dude, drop it. Like, I, I'm, I'm not saying self-care is bad, but I'm saying that please, please be vigilant that your self-care is not indulging into the comfort cult of modernity. And I think that's like, if you really need balance in your life, but if you like, and, and you really don't know how to take care of yourself, but I think that's the, that's a very small minority of people. Um, so I think what more, most people I've met in my life, their medicine is in strife, is in even my motorcycle. I say like, it's not, it's not just a rock and roll rom romance thing. I mean, partly I grew up around motorcycles, but also it's a great way of introducing some daily adversity into your life, you know? Um, sure. Um, That's a great so, one. Um, yeah, it's just how it happened. Um, oh man, I don't know. I just, you got, yeah, I just chose chose life and one step at a time i'll give you a little in, insight there's a the video that that the video that broke us basically was a playthrough video for a song the parting of a neck yeah. and it's just adam and i on my couch in my old apartment 
And I have a black eye in that video. And that was because of a panic attack I had like a few days prior. So it was just like, uh, it, it was this survival. Like I described it as an explosion of survival. It was like, I had to fight back. You know, I just had to fight back to this crumbling, the sense of crumbling. Like I had never crumbled like that. You know, I'd never like, I've had setbacks. I've been knocked to the ground and I've gotten back up, but I've never been fed through a wood chipper and then like sprayed with acid and then like buried into the ground and then like soaked with piss and lit on fire. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I do. It's just like, I was mulched. It was just like, and I think that there's kind of an alchemy to life and where it's like, you kind of have to put forth, you have to bite back as hard as life bites to get yourself back. And I'm like, life really just took the piss out of me, you know, in a real way. And now I have to take the piss out of it. You know, uh, I think when I was really, really high on indignation, I was like, I'm gonna break the back of a world that failed in breaking me. You know, I think that's something that I said to myself, oh, yeah. you know, where I'm just like, that's all you fucking got, you know? So I just got it cut. You kind of get, you have to get high on your own fumes. You kind of have to get this necessary arrogance that you don't need to project onto other people, but that you internalize yourself of like this, just like you mother, you got to get aggressive and it's kind of dumb. You know, you can't think your way out of it. You just got to start. You just got to start swinging, you know? And if you have that energy and if you just, you just hit it and you say, fuck you, you're going to take 70 pounds from me. I'm going to get in the gym, see what happens, you know? And, uh, I, you know, that first day, like back in the gym, when you decided to rebuild yourself, do you remember? Yeah, I was crying. I cried, you know, it was, uh, it was so defeating. Yeah. It was so fucking defeating. It was, uh, being a grown man squatting a bar with no weight on it yeah. and having a hard time. Yeah. That'll fuck with your head. Yeah. You know, uh, trying to redefine what strength is for you and get okay with it. Um, I remember trying to do uh, some weighted curls for the first time and feeling that scar tissue rip and just being so overwhelmed with pain and wondering if I'd ever be able to work out my abs again and just knowing what I know about how scar tissue works and keeping it, just hitting it harder. And, and now, I mean, there's a kind of, I wish, I wish I could say that I came out of that thinking that I'm unstoppable, but it was, it was, it was a humbling experience. I've never felt so small, especially the drug addiction, you know, nothing will humble you like a drug addiction. Nothing will turn you into a dog, a dog as Lemmy put it. You know, one of my favorite interviews about drugs is with Lemmy and he's talking about the secret of his drug use. And he's like, uppers, man, I don't fuck with downers. <laughs> he's like, I see what happens with that shit. He's like, heroin never touched it. Never will. You know, he's like, he's like, I had never seen someone lose, like lose themselves on like, you know, speed the way I've seen people, He's like, it turns people into dogs. Heroin turns people into dogs. And it does. Evil, dark shit, man. Yeah. And it's not, it's not romantic, no. not rock and roll. 
It's no, not no. fucking kids. Kids like looking over into the, you think it's fucking all those black metal rock stars or whatever. You're like, fine, whatever. But it's not a don't. People that find themselves self-medicating with heroin, if you don't have, feel like they have to, if you don't feel like you have to, and even then don't, but of course you can't help it. You know, I, I understand. I understand. But uh, um, it's not, there's not, there's my, if you've got to play around with hard drugs to cope, <laughs> it's like, it's like, I don't know, whatever, but it's like, just don't stay away from, stay away from that shit. Not that Coke can't turn you into a nut bar, but oh, really? uh, man, it's, uh, uh, I've, seen, I've seen that happen. There's nothing like, nothing like opiates, man. It's a special kind of demon that will steal your soul. And, and, the, thing is, and the thing is, they're forced upon you. I mean, in your case, literally, yeah. fucking just pumped into you. But how yeah. many people just, that, I mean, they hand them out like candy, you know? And yeah. if we would preach a little bit of a better living, better eating, you know, but they're, you know, yeah. the pharmaceutical industries are in cahoots with the food industry and we're just fucking killing people left and right. You're, you're a little bit more of an extreme case, but yeah. It's well, I mean, yes and no, man. It's horrifying. I mean, when I was looking into this epidemic, they did, I, I, part of what happened was I, I came in, my, my hospital stay came at the end of a crackdown, like an international fucking opiate crackdown where they stuck, they really started limiting the prescriptions and what people were allowed to prescribe. And a lot of doctors started getting in trouble. So um, people went real hands off and there was this huge wave of, horribly tragic suits of people that had been on, you know, people that are truly victims of a flawed medical system that had been on these dosages for 20 years, right? People with like chronic nerve pain yeah. that have been on morphine or whatever for 20 fucking years. And all of a sudden their doctor says, sorry, like what, uh, what are you supposed to do? You know, like, this guy, this guy with a family, and I read the story about a guy with a family of three, you know, a wife and a family of three kids, loving father, good family, has had, a, you know, uh, some sort of uh, rare disease, nerve disease that caused chronic pain. He went in his barn and fucking blew his brains out because his doctor stopped giving him meds, you know? And it's like- Crazy, man. It's, it's just, it's insane out there where it's like you, you, there is this whole group of people that are collateral damage uh, between this this kind of conversation between the pharmaceutical company and the medical industry, um, and you know there's that the only people the best people that are in position to look out for those people are the ones that have been through it. You know. Yeah, absolutely, man. And it's so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about. It. I'm sorry, I kind of. Uh, the, do not apologize, bro. That that's an important story to tell, and I'm, I'm so. I'm so thankful for you, man. You're so vulnerable and just gracious with your, with your time and just how you, you speak, man. It mean it means a lot, bro. It really does. Thank you. It's important to hear. And just knowing where you're at now and going, going through all that and even, you know, seeing you physically, I mean, you look fucking great, man. That's, that's Thank you. so, it's so cool to see. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's great too. I'm actually proud to say that I'm almost as strong as I used to be. And before even the hospital, mm -hmm. and uh, um, how long did that take you? Uh, I, where you are and now? Muscle memory is a motherfucker. 
yeah. you'll learn that too. You know, if you used to lift weights, um, it's a lot easier to get back. Yeah. But about a year, you know, I've been back for about a year now and I'm still not as strong as I used to be. So it's, uh, you really just have to let go. You have to let go of, of those expectations and just, like I said, uh, uh, just let being stronger and hopefully smarter than you were yesterday be, be enough for you, you know, and just move toward life, man. It's all that. Like, if you just, if you understand that life is about living is about moving toward one end or the other spectrum, as long as you're confident you're moving toward life, you can find food, you can find some peace, you can find some purpose. It's a mental game too, man. Right. Yeah. You know, always yeah. have to keep with like, you, you went back to the gym the, a second time, you know, after, yeah. after that first time that defeated you, 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 you fucking were there again. That's, that's yeah. the important thing. And then you were there yeah. a third time, you know, yeah. but you yeah. know, those people, they, they, they'd quit by then, you know, yeah. you just had to make that choice and stick to it. Right. You just got to keep coming back as long as you have the strength to do it, man. If you don't use it, you lose it, you know, and I just want to keep fighting. In, in the context of all this, where was the uh, vitriol record and the in the writing and, and all that? Was it all like done before you did all this, or was this at, was the, that a response to was that was the record a response to that? Yes. That's, so yeah. the record was a way for me to. It was basically my like replacement drug, right? You know, like I, I went, I I did, I went full Bridezilla, like that's all I did. I oh, that's. And uh, uh, yeah, I, it was actually pretty poetic because when I went in and we did vocals, I was still so fucked up. I was still uh, weak and in pain that about with three songs left, my navel, like the scar tissue in my navel had herniated. So from doing vocals so hard, so like my, my navel basically looked like a turkey baster, you know, like not a turkey baster, but the little thermometer that pops out. Sure. And I had finished one of the, the last song poetically being pain will define their death. I had to do those vocals, like literally holding in, you know, I was, I was at the mic doing this, holding in my herniated navel so I could flex and like do wow. vocals, you know, that's so uh, cool. I mean, so, <laughs> that really is. That's so, that's so heavy metal. <laughs> that's what defines yeah. it. So, it, it was a it was a beautiful opportunity. Like when the, the I guess what happened was now it, it's kind of crystallizing to me. Um, Everlasting, we did an EP called "Find Their Death" that came out in 2018 for Everlasting's View. And um, after the hospital, we wanted to do a uh, that they agreed to release. Pardon me, Everlasting's View agreed to release this EP. We had finished the EP, they heard it, they loved it. It was kind of getting a buzz. That's when I went into the hospital, like right after the self-release. And then uh, when we got out of the hospital, that's when Everlasting Spew, when we resumed, we're like, all right, let's do this now. Everlasting, we're like, we should do something special. They're like, do you have any old songs, demo songs or anything that we could put on the, e the CD to make it more desirable since you already self-released this like a year ago or whatever. Um, we're like, we have this old song that we were not going to do anything with called The Parting of a Neck. <laughs> that song was actually not ever supposed to really see the light of day. It was a very old song. Oh, wow. And we sent it to them and we're like, do you like this? And they're like, oh, we love it. Let's put it on there as a fourth track. 
So with we, Adam and I had this wild idea 24 hours before the fucking release of the video, excuse me, the EP, we're like, we should do something like a video, like a playthrough. Like people like that, people like playthroughs now. So we should do that in a way of promoting the release on our end. So within 24 hours before the release of the EP, we figured out how to film and edit. You know, we learned iMovie and stuff. And we submitted the playthrough video that we made and edited like at 12.30 a.m. the day it was being released. Oh, dude. Hell yeah. So, yeah. So we posted it, not thinking anything. Like, honestly, it's the classic thing. Like, we had, if you go back, you look at anyone that's familiar with this stuff, like, we have a music video from 2017 for Victim. Okay. And that's like full production, like real performance video. You know, like everything we had done. Like, I know I want Vitriol to be like, I don't want to just be a local band. I want to take this far. So everything has to be like pro. That was my whole kind of, you know, I have to do it right. And this, this playthrough video was the very first thing we ever did. That was just kind of like an afterthought. I was like, ah, let's just, we have to, let's do the right thing. Let's throw it together so we can promote it. That would be wise. So without even thinking, like it was like, we're sitting on my fucking floral couch or my paisley couch. Uh, in my living in my living room, my apartment, that thing got like two hundred thousand views in two weeks. Wow! And it was just like we were fucking like, what the fuck? It made no sense to us. Uh, and that's when we got some emails from labels, and one of them being Century Media, who we ended up signing with, um, off the success of that that video, that opportunity, that opportunity was what gave me kind of like a real second wind. I was like, all right, this is, this is like, this is the eight mile moment. You know, like yeah. here's my opportunity. This is exactly what I wanted. I wanted, uh, I, this is why I played it. So played the long game. Vitriol has been a band since 2012. It's not the first label we talked to. You know, I wanted to play the long game because I had so much belief in the material that I, I really felt that it deserved a, a great introduction to the world. And I with Central Media present, I was like, I have no excuse. I know I've got, I just received everything I asked for my whole life. And now I have to give it, now there's like this huge wave of a responsibility where I'm like, the, the world is fine, the universe is finally like called my bluff, right? They're like, okay, hot shot. You want a fucking chance? Here's a fucking chance. And I was like, Ooh. so I just went a little crazy and, you know, had to make sure everything was right. You know, um, uh, I, I even left like uh, the quote, I was like, I don't want any, the, 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 if you look at the insert of the album, I was like, I don't want any credits. I don't want any thank yous or anything like that. I just want lyrics. And I want one quote from Napoleon and it says uh, something like I'm paraphrasing a really exact quote now, but it's uh, um, uh, uh, the only, your only immortality is the memory left in the minds of men. Hell yeah, dude. Um, God, man. Yeah. And it's like, I took that to serious heart. That's something that I heard him say in a, in a documentary I watched about him. Uh, some time ago and I just like it lit my soul on fire and I was like that's the truth and I saw this as the material 
expectation of that opportunity to leave that imprint in the memory uh, in the minds of men. And, uh, so it was like, uh, it was my chance to, um, and I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep at night unless I gave it ev everything, everything. So, you know, I gave that album everything and it, it left me very, <laughs> afterward yeah it's um it's a hell of a record and you know after just knowing your story knowing you man i mean i i don't know if that how you feel about this but it makes me like it a lot more I, I don't know if it should matter or should you separate the art from the artist or not or anything but like just that makes me it gives me a whole new appreciation for it and i appreciate that you I, know, I think i think Go ahead, sir. I was going to say, my, my podcast co-host who did Listen Risk with us, Schuler, as you know, he claims that it is the best debut in extreme metal ever. Wow. <laughs> you know, we, we have very so high better. praise for for, yeah. for for your music, man. But uh, I, this I, makes me like it more. And I'm so grateful. I, I do like that. I think I think music, you know, it's a great opportunity, you know, as, as a fan as a real devoted fan of, of the underground and metal, you know, I've become actually quite good at separating the art from the artist. Yeah. But I do appreciate when, when the, the artist um, can add more dimension with their identity. You know, some artists you'd rather forget who made it. <laughs> and, and other artists, you know, can help shape the scope in a really favorable way. You know, that's uh, it, a really common thing, of course, like, visual artists you know especially painters it's so much about the artist uh relative to the art you know so yeah i'm very i, I i'm that's good to know and i'm very uh, appreciative that, that i can enhance that experience yeah, i mean i mean it's a fucking great record to work out to now especially knowing after all this like you if you can do that man i can get through this run you know that's what that's what we're gonna <laughs> awesome yes please here right yeah. you know no yeah. it, it is great man and um just going back real real quick i'm gonna let you go here in a minute but yeah, i just wanted yeah. you to want to uh ask you during like your time and even in the hospital um recovering any of that when you're when you're suffering and, and going through that being an, an artist myself and, and a romantic dude were you at any point like man this is going to make some like great lyrics or great art someday i'm using this oh. in this I hope, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's funny. That's a really good question because it, I mean, in a way, so to answer the question directly, I can say that it's hopeful, but I was skeptical because I've always been, I think something, especially if you had a, a similar background, um, you know, this, this kind of romantic, uh, Hollywood depiction of depression and real, real abjection, you know, like these really, these states of like just deep, they, they, there's this, there's this very Hollywood fluffy notion about the woe is me artist that sits and like lets their heart bleed through the pen all day and their sorrow feeds their craft. And like, in my experience, that's all bullshit. Like real depression, you can't get out of bed, yeah. let alone want to pick up your fucking guitar. Like if you're sitting writing and shit, like, like it might be because, you know, maybe that phase of your life now influenced it 
because now you're a little healthier and mobile and connected with the world. But like when those things happen to you, um, in my experience, it just robs me of all inspiration. And it makes me, I remember in the hospital, honestly, wow, it's great that you asked me this because it just reminded me of a real shame I felt in the hospital was that I felt, if I'm being honest, was uh, that I was worried that music was just so trivial, you know? Mm. And I, I don't, it, and there was something about the harrowing nature of like what was going on that I think made my, I don't know if it was just the brutality of the situation so exceeded that of my experience with extreme music or something. I don't know what it was. I can't describe it, but it was very like, sure. it just felt like, it felt like a luxury is the best way I could put it. Like the idea of like being a musician and playing in a band at that point in my life felt like such a fucking luxury. And then I was just thinking about things, much of things that were much more real and urgent. I don't know. No, but for sure. <laughs> the experience absolutely turned me into someone that is able to speak in a way, like it gave me a lot of, it granted me perspective that allowed me to be a much more powerful creative. So oh, yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't do it in the way you think it would. It's not like, oh, something happens and you, you, you know, you're just like, oh, so-and-so died. I'm going to write a song about so-and-so dying. You know, like that happens sometimes, but it's not, you know, it's like, a, for me, it wasn't, I didn't use any direct experience as like inspiration. It was just the, um, the spiritual cleansing of the whole experience, that kind of purification through fire, you know, of like, uh, we trimmed off the fat, you know, it's a lot harder to complain about things now. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it did produce fantastic art at the end of the day, though. I mean, you did. So it, are you at the point where it, is it too much of a stretch to say you're grateful for that? You know, grateful for the suffering and all you went through because it got you to the point? I think I, in theory, yes, I think I'm, again, I'm being honest with my internal world, it feels, I still feel I'm not big enough yet right. to not resent that experience as much as I still do. You know, I still take it personally. I'm still really mad. Yeah. And I think that is, is obstructing my ability to do things through the wise mind. And I think that when that time I have enough distance from that experience, I will. I think I will. And, and if, if I come back wholly too, because I'm still in a rebuilding phase. Right. You know, especially mentally. You know, mentally it left me in ruins. You know, I was a much more disciplined person emotionally, psychologically. And there's a lot of, it wasn't just the experience. It was also, you know, I was on, um, prednisone steroids for way too long absolutely and that fucks with your whole everything adrenal system and your fight or flight responses go and it's just like yeah you know you're throwing a printer through the fucking wall all of a sudden you don't know what's going on so 
there's it's just still a lot of rebuilding and uh redirecting and uh but yes yes more than more than more than not i am grateful for the experience so long as i'm strong enough to bounce back entirely that's powerful man and hopefully what you still you're working through is a great fuel for virtual second record it is it is it very much is was absolutely influenced deeply by that 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 experience so that's great that's great i'm excited to share it i we can't wait to hear it man you're my huge huge beyond a huge fan man no you know when you're when you're on next time you're on tour if that ever happens or anything you're in the pittsburgh area you have a gym you have a friend bro <laughs> reach out anything yeah. and, That's um, awesome. i love it yeah that'd be great man i uh i'm so grateful to have you on man thank thank you for your time brother we'll thank you. thanks for being patient no, yeah, dude, you're, you're, you're an inspiration and I'm, it's, I'm happy to see you doing so well after knowing all that just i just want you to know i think you're kicking ass man thank <laughs> you very very, yeah. very much appreciate it that positive reinforcement helps thank you dude all right, man. I'll have a great rest of your day, brother. Thank, Thank you so much. You too.